right, friends. Greg Kokel here. Santa Reason is the show. And right now I'm probably working on my boat in Wisconsin as you listen to this, or maybe fishing, actually. Uh, yes, I'm on vacation, which is why I'm doing this special broadcast right now, um, early, so you'll have it. Yeah, this is for later this week, right? Yeah, okay, so you'll have it. And uh, I, I'm leaving, but not leaving you as orphans. I am still here adequately for your purposes, I hope. And doing uh, open mic calls today, and that's uh, you can participate in the future. Um, great thing, because you don't actually have to wait and get in the queue uh, when I'm actually in the studio in order to get your audible question responded to. Okay, uh, open mic means that you can go to our open mic and record your question on our website or just through a phone call, and then we can play it, and I can respond. The only disadvantage for me is I don't get to interact with you on the issue, especially if I have more questions of clarification that would help me do a better job answering your question. So the number to call for that, if you want to do it by phone, is 857 dial STR 857 DIAL, I'm sorry, 857 DIAL STR or 857 342 5787. I never like the the, like the letters thing, you know, what I have to do is I have to write the letters down and then I have to look at my phone and I put the numbers above them so that I can just dial it easily. But in any event, 857-342-5787. Or you can go to our homepage, then check on podcasts and then under live broadcasts. Uh, you can also leave your question there. So those are two ways of uh, participating in our open mic calls. So, um, we have a question here by Jordan we're going to go to in a moment, and um, it has to do with distractions in the church while you're worshiping. And um, uh, so uh, this might be something that um, everyone, in one way or another, might uh, be able to benefit from as I reflect on it. Uh, how are we doing there, Kyle? Let's hear from Jordan. Hello, Greg Kokel and everyone else at STR. My name is Jordan. I'm from Georgia, and I'm calling in regards to a question I've had on my mind that I've not really been sure how to unpack internally and deal with, and I just kind of want your take on it. So I've come to notice that some people are way more charismatic than I am. I'm a very stoic individual, and I don't really express my worship in that way. And I want to be gracious to those kind of people that are more charismatic than me. And I've noticed that I find it a little jarring distracting, sometimes even inappropriate to clap, shout, yell ad-libs during prayer or worship. And I don't want to begrudge anybody for worshiping in the way they feel so inclined to do. I want to be gracious to them and, you know, respect that they aren't just enjoying the presence of the Lord. Um, So how do you unpack that and how do you go about dealing with that? Or is that even an issue to be concerned with? Thank you for all you guys do at STR. appreciate you guys. God bless. Take care. Well, thanks a lot, Jordan. And, um, yeah, it's something I want to speak to because it's not an uncommon experience. Now, uh, if you are in a charismatic church, characteristically, the Pentecostal type, there's just going to be a lot of that. That's the culture. If you're in a black charismatic church or just a black church, this is part of their culture, too. Go on, go on, brother, you know, and clapping hands and amen and all that. That's just the way they do things. And uh, generally, people... <clears throat> gather together in communities that are much like them. 
and I am completely sympathetic to that. I, I actually think diversity is way, way overworked. But there's a political edge to diversity, and I think that's why it's so emphasized. Um, diversity has its advantages, but it has its disadvantages, too. And here's an example of that. So here you are worshiping in a church, and now they've got diversity. Some people like it really quiet and mellow and somber, and somebody likes to dance around. Do you see the difficulty, you know? Um, certainly the dan person dancing around isn't going to be troubled by somebody being silent, but the reverse is not true. The person being silent is going to be distracted. So uh, I, a couple of thoughts on this. And sometimes it's just the same individual or group of individuals in, in an otherwise more um, sedate <laughs> church environment that are making all the noise, all right? Um, one thing is, find a different place to sit. Generally, people sit in the same place. We're creatures of habit, so we go in and we sit in somewhat the same area of our church. And if you have people that are kind of like that and distracting in the way they worship, uh, I would just move to another area. Maybe not in the service where they're being a little wild because they might get the feeling you're moving away because of them and whatever, but next time. Then come and sit in another place, further in the back, maybe, in the balcony, whatever. Find a place where you are less likely to be distracted. Now, if you are in a church that doesn't have any other places that you are less likely to be distracted, because everybody's distracting, my suspicion is you're in the wrong church. Not, not theologically, necessarily, but culturally. You're, you're in a family that is too boisterous for your tastes, and I think it's going to be very difficult for you uh, to enjoy <clears throat> worship because of that, or even the sermon if they're vocal during the sermons, and that's something that's acceptable in that larger community. So um, those would be my first two recommendations, but there's another recommendation that um, might be helpful, and it's helped me personally. Um, I just read a biography of C.S. Lewis titled Jack, which is the name that he went by. It's written by Sayers, Douglas Sayers, I think, and who is a longtime friend of um, C.S. Lewis's. And Lewis was a, a bit snobby a lot of his life, certainly early on, before he was a Christian. And even after he became a Christian, was snobby. As he got, he looked down his nose at a lot of people. And as he got older, he got more mellow. But this particular characterization of Lewis was um, a, a bit of an eye-opener, because it took a tremendous amount of shine off the man. You know, he he was no longer, for me, this you know, greater-than-life individual, because Sayers' account, and Sayers was very close to Lewis for 20 years, and was a student of Lewis's and then a close friend. Uh, he just told it the way it was, and some of the things were, were, I'll just put it this way, shocking to me. Just shocking. Now, Lewis got better, but one of the things that Lewis was troubled by was these the differences of worship style. And uh, what, as maturity, you know, overtook him over time, he realized that he, it was, it was wrong for him to expect 
others in the congregation to comport themselves in a way that made him completely comfortable. Because people are individuals and you're in a, a group, even when the culture of the group is very similar, you may be in a liturgical church and everybody's kind of the same way. Um, even so, there might be little things that still trouble you about the way people are comporting themselves, or the music. You could have somebody just sings really loudly, even in a more staid, liturgical kind of environment, you know, just sings really loudly. I like to sing loud, but I remember my wife or my kids telling me, you're singing too loud. It was a distraction to other people. And so I had to take that into into account. However, um, when I'm somewhere where somebody's singing too loud, or, and this is more germane to my own circumstance, where worship leaders are leading worship in a way that's really annoying to me. I have a hard time in worship. Very, very, uh, let's put it this way. I am critical of a lot of ways that worship leaders lead worship today. I don't think it's because I'm just a critical person, though, probably more than most. Fortunately, I found a way to make a living at it. But um, I, I, there's lots that's wrong, I think, with the way worship is conducted in our church today, and it's just hard for me to enter in because there's so many distractions coming from the stage. And uh, nevertheless, as I read the comments of Lewis about how he adjusted to this, I, I also had to instruct myself, Greg, you're not going to get the perfect worship leader that's going to do it every time the way you like it. Deal with it. Lighten up. Relax. Be tolerant. Okay, so you're distracted. Okay, then when you got a song that you're not distracted, enter in. There's always nothing. Look at see it. Um, Francis Schaeffer said that all utopian ideals tend to be cruel in the end because they can never be fulfilled. All right, makes sense. So if I have a utopian ideal about worship, and it's just got to go just so everybody's singing on key, following the melody that everyone could sing, and uh, no trills or fancy uh, entertainment. Uh, flourishes to distract you, if that's my standard, it's never going to happen. It's going to happen once in a while. Enjoy it when it does. But if it's if my expectation is is perfection, essentially, at least by my standards, then I'm going to—it's cruel. It just makes me, you know, nasty towards other people in my heart. And that's my problem. So, um, on a practical level, move where you sit or move to another church if this is a big problem, depending on the magnitude of the issue. And don't expect it all just to be just the way you want it, because it's not going to be that way, probably, in many cases. If you find a community that's a lot like you and you and the theology is good and all that, you're going to, most of the times you're going to feel probably more comfortable. But there'll always be something, right? Anna Rosanna Dana. It's always something, you know? So uh, no utopian ideals about that one. Hope that helps. Uh, helps. Jordan, I've had to deal with that myself, okay? How about Stephen? Uh, let's, uh, Stephen has a question about, uh, just about 
gender issues at work, and uh, there's a particular tactic. Hi, Greg. My name is Steve, and uh, I've been reading uh, Tactics, and I've gotten through to about Chapter 13, and it's uh, raised some good questions in my mind. One of them is about things that are happening at my work, um, and I'm wondering if this would be a case for sibling rivalry. So over the last few years, my company, about 2,500 people, we're a Fortune 500 company in the Midwest, has been jumping on the DEI bandwagon, and there's lots of different uh, associate resource groups for um, people of different genders, different uh, sexualities, things like that. And it kind of struck me the other day, we received an award for being a great place to work for women from uh, Forbes, I believe it was. And we received that award based on our company being a great place to work for women. But then on the same hand, the company seems to be pushing, or at least from these resource groups perspective, that gender is irrelevant. And it just kind of struck me the other day, and I'm not sure if this only works for people that think with uh, objective truth in mind, or if it is a legitimate point to bring up that we have one thing being raised here for women and trying to have, you know, good opportunity for them in the workplace, which we do. But then on the other hand, we're saying, okay, well, there's this other group of people and gender is no longer important. It's irrelevant. Mm. I'm just wondering what your thoughts would be on mm -hmm. that. If I'm well, Stephen, off base here, oh. or if this uh, idea has any merit. Thank you. No, thank you, Steve. And I think uh, the, the idea does have merit. Um, the question is whether it's going to have potency in a conversation with somebody. And rather than trying to use this fine observation as, a, as, as like a critical turning point in the discussion or whatever, it might be just that you're dropping a stone in someone's shoe when you raise the issue, okay? Uh, just for the sake of the rest of the, of the listeners, uh, the sibling rivalry is a type of suicide tactic. Suicide is when a view is self-refuting, okay? I can't—there is no truth. Okay, well, that's—really? Isn't that meant to be understood as a true statement? Or, I can't speak a word in English. Well, what would what was that? You know, <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, those are obvious examples of self-refutation. But sibling rivalry self-refutation self or suicide is a, is a hybrid form where you have two objections that are raised by the same person, but the objections compete with each other. So a person might, on the one hand, argue for moral relativism. Look, at you can't push your morality on me. There is no right and wrong. Everybody figures out right and wrong for themselves. Okay, that's moral relativism. And then they, in, you know, down the line, then they complain about the problem of evil in the world. Well, for there to be a problem in, for, of evil in the world— there has to be objective morality, because if not, then the problem of evil is merely um, how could there be a God if things happen that I don't like, <laughs> which is trivial, right? So there's got to be objective morality for the problem of evil, but if you argue relativism, then you can't complain about that. So these are, from the same person, these are siblings, so to speak. These are a pair of objections that rival each other. 
And uh, if a person is fair-minded and even-handed and thoughtful, they've got to abandon one or the other in order to be reasonable, okay? They both can't be the case. So that's what sibling rivalry is here, and here Steve has um, observed, on the one hand, you have a company promoting, um, you know, the idea that, that gender is maybe socially constructed. What you said, Steve, was that it was irrelevant. I'm not sure if that that's the way they're arguing. It might be that it's socially constructed. You're whatever gender that you, or individually constructed. You're whatever gender you claim to be. Okay. So, um, and on the other hand, they treat gender as a fixed feature found grounded in anatomy. Women. We are in favor of women's rights. So, w- 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 which is it? Is gender not fixed, but constructed, and it's kind of whatever? Or is a woman a particular thing, a particular kind of human being? That's what I mean. What And so these are these are two different messages that seem to be conflicting. Now, I think it's fair to raise the issue, but like I said, I don't think what it's going to do is, um, you know, be a be a kind of a, a drop-dead argument to them. These companies, in my view, have adopted all these things. They become woke for one reason. It's good for business. That's it. And when it's bad for business, they change. Look what happened to—was it Budweiser? Who kind of had the yeah the transgender uh, whatever you know representing then they, 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 they their sales plummeted like within a week. Target same thing happened they lost billions of dollars in one week when they did what they did with transgender for kids. So um, and then they changed right why? Because they're not people of principle. They care about the bottom line the profit. That's why they're doing this. Okay so they're just going along with the crowd. If they were people of principle, you might be able to talk with them on a principled basis. But I think it is fair, just kind of for fun, to raise the question. I'm really confused about—so here I'm role-playing a little bit. I actually—if you raise the issue, I I wonder whether or not they will even understand your point. Okay? I'm just saying in advance. They may not even get it. But— you can only have women's rights that it really the robust sense of women's rights is based on a particular human being kind of human being a woman okay and that's why okay so but now what's a woman a woman is whatever a woman is whatever what's a female oh uh, by the way, people can't even answer that question. They say, I'm a woman in a man's body. What's a woman? That's something you feel. You mean you feel like you have a, a uterus and a vagina? No, no, I feel like I'm a woman. Well, what is a woman that you would feel like a woman? I can't explain it. Well, if you can't explain it, then how could you say you feel like a woman in a man's body? You see the difficulty here. Uh, this is borderline incoherent. So... um I mean, we can answer that question. What is a woman? A woman is a is a member of the human species who has the native capability to reproduce. All right, that's pretty simple. Maybe they don't reproduce, or maybe they're too young to reproduce yet, but they're still female if they have the native capability of reproducing. Now, look, there are always going to be exceptions 
to the basic rule. We don't deal in exceptions here. We deal in the basic rules, okay? Um, hard cases make bad policy. Let's just use common sense. So if a person wears a dress but doesn't have female organs, she's not a woman. He's not a woman. <laughs> he is a he, based on his... And by the way, that's what makes sense of women's rights, Title IX. The whole idea of Title IX was to separate women from men in sports because of the obvious physical differences. And it's just not fair, on the one hand, for m women to have to com compete with men at the level of men, and for men to be able to compete and women not be allowed to compete in the same sport. So Title IX said if you're going to have this sport in your school for men, you have to provide the same sport for women or something along that lines. The, the problem is that Title IX is, is effectively, you know, inconsequential, at least on that issue, because now a woman could be a man and a man could be a woman. So now you can have men, physical men, competing against physical women, which is what Title IX was supposed to protect women from. Crazy. In any event, I think it's fair to say, okay, I'm confused because we got this thing, it's a great place for women to work. In that sense, what's a woman? That's the question. What is a woman? Now, the only i think the only way they can answer that is is the standard way well it is it is physical it's a great place for physical women to work okay well then gender is tied to the physical body it seems to me because you just said a woman is someone who has these physical characteristics but if gender is not tied to the body but to the mind then when you say it's a great place for women to work do they mean when they awarded you it's a great place for all these people who believe they're women, whether they are or not, to work? No, that's not what they meant. You know that. But at least now when you ask that question, that can get them thinking. And I wouldn't push it too far because then you sound like a troublemaker, but it, there's nothing wrong with taking that tack to try to put a stone in their shoe, okay? Or you could even ask, on this issue right now, what is homosexuality? Homosexuality, I mean, it seems to me, common sense, is, is, a, is, a, is a male who is sexually, sexually attracted to another male. A member of his own sex, or the same for lesbians, a female sexually attracted to another female. But if a female isn't anything in particular, and a male isn't anything in particular, then what is a homosexual? Is it somebody who believes they're male, regardless of the uh, sexual apparatus they happen to have, being sexually attracted to somebody else who believes they're male, also regardless of the sexual apparatus they actually have? Because that could, in that circumstance, you could have heterosexual sex being now defined as homosexual. Here is a physical man who believes he's a woman being married to a physical woman who believes she's a woman. And so this is a woman attracted to a woman in one sense, but a man having sex with a woman in another sense. So what is it? Now, I think these are fair questions, okay? And it underscores 
the confusion that all of this entails. It's a complete abandonment of common sense. All right. Okay, so uh, let's take a break, and we'll come back with more open calls when we're done. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org donate. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Standard Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with the confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. Okay, friends, uh, let's see. We've got some more good questions here that uh, I'd like to address. Uh, and here is a question from Julie, um, just about uh, mocking foolishness. <laughs> Let's hear what she has to say. Julie? Hi, Greg. So um, my husband just sent me a text, and it is a link to Jeremy Boring from Daily Wire's um, chocolate bars. I don't know if you've seen these, but um, they're labeled she, her, and he, him. Um, and I... I don't mean to be crass, but uh, one has, you know, one has nuts and one does not have nuts. And obviously there's um, comedic relief intended there. And when he sent it to me, my first reaction, what, you know, was to laugh and, and everything. But the, he had said, you know, I just, I think if you look at this biblically, 
at the end of the day, like this doesn't seem like the right tact. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on this. Um, you know, should should Christians support something like that? While I do, obviously, I want to hold strong to my positions that are based in reality and based on a biblical worldview. But is that tact of, you know, having a conservative company make a chocolate bar that's, I mean, obviously it's a joke, but, you know, if I bring this into work and I have a, a colleague who considers themselves a different gender and if I'm, you know, I, I don't know, I, I guess it's, is this the right tact and is this something that that Christians should support or not support. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate Seth Dillon's commentary from Babylon B talking about mocking ideas rather than people. However, sometimes in order to mock an idea, they do choose to mock an individual person. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I struggle with it personally because it should be a joke. The idea of a man becoming a woman should be a silly thing because it's silly. But, um, you know, I also want to try to reach someone for Christ and not make them feel like I, I hate them. But anyways, thank you so much. And I appreciate your answer. Wow, Julie, this is, um, thank you so much for this. And, uh, this is a little bit of a tricky one to answer. Um, because I think it kind of depends. I can't rule out um, a kind of mocking um, regarding some of these things. I can't rule it out of hand. And part of the reason is, is that the Apostle Paul did this. If you read in the book of Galatians, he is taking the Galatians to task for being taken in by the Judaizers, which said, who said that you have to keep the Mosaic Law in addition to believing in Christ in order to be saved. And that was exemplified by getting circumcised. And Paul argues vigorously against this, and then towards the end of his letter says that uh, if if there are those—I probably could look it up, because the translations are always a little bit delicate the way they handle it—if uh, there's there are those who want to make a showing in the flesh, and here he means in the physical body— um, you know, if they want to, if they want to demonstrate their spirituality in a physical way by getting circumcised, well, then maybe they should just go all the way and and uh, and castrate themselves. Okay, let me see if I can find it. Now, he doesn't use the word, or at least in English, it's not translated that way. Um, neither la 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 da 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 dee da dee for the world. Those who are circumcised and keep the law themselves. Uh, let's see. Where is it? Um, those, I'm looking at the end of Galatians. I should have looked this up earlier. Um, he does say in, in chapter, in the last two verses, he says, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my mark the brand marks of, on my body, the brand marks of Jesus. In other words, the point that he is making here is if you want to, if you want to have a physical sign of your faithfulness to God, I have the signs of being persecuted for Christ, okay? And that's what matters here. Um, uh, the, they desire to have you circumcised so that they might boast in your flesh. 
Okay. Oh, for goodness sake, I am having a... Mamie, do you know where this is? Uh, I thought it was Galatians. But anyway, the way the translation goes is that they should just mutilate themselves. And so he's being sarcastic, and that's not the only place. In 2 Corinthians, he says to oh, when somebody comes and preaches a different Jesus and a different, you know, salvation, a different this and different that, oh, you receive him wonderfully, you know. And he's he's chastising them with sarcasm. So we we know that there are places in Scripture where, where where Paul kind of does that thing. And this one that I was talking about, a circumcision. Oh, a different chapter, five twelve. Thank you, Amy. Uh, okay. <clears throat> but if I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abandoned. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Okay, go ahead. You know, you want to, you want to, you you want to show your spirituality that way. Then just you know, cut the whole thing off. Now that's kind of parody, sarcasm, whatever. And there are other places where we see something like that. Although that seems the most crude way of putting it. So I think there is a place, certainly for parody, when you're trying to say, show how foolish an idea is in a joking manner, okay? It's the, the goal is not to ridicule, and maybe this is the distinction you might make, but to exploit the foolishness of an idea in a memorable and maybe even funny way. And Babylon B does this great. And uh, <clears throat> the goal isn't to mock people, and to make fun of people and make them feel bad. Although I think the candy bar thing, that struck me as a little bit odd. I don't even know if I completely followed that, but that just seemed like a slam on people. The uh, but, but genuine parody, I think, is entirely legitimate. You know who does parody really well in this fashion lately on this issues? He does it better than anybody. Bill Maher. Classic liberal. He, he is fed up with the left. And for the last few months, he's been doing screeds against the left, and they're funny. And they're funny because they're right to the point. He is showing how ridiculous all of this is. And he's pro-gay. He's pro-all this kind of stuff. He is not pro-leftist and all the nonsense that they're advancing. And, uh, and, and when he talks, he even identifies the trans trend— as a as a essentially as a social contagion this is just a fad it's just a fad and people's bodies are being mutilated for a fad but he says this in a really funny way all you do is go to youtube and look him up and look and watch some of his screeds they're really really good because he gets to the point in a funny way and he's not trying to diss people he's trying to diss a movement of stupidity so that kind of thing is good i think it's completely acceptable and if you don't if you're not comfortable with that then don't do that but i think there is a category that's acceptable sarcasm uh parody something like that okay um on the other hand i think there there is a um there is a there's an attempt to to um make fun of individuals and just be cruel and that that i think is is inappropriate okay so it's an individual judgment call 
um, as to as to what uh, where one has crossed the line. And you just have to decide for yourself in terms of what you say or what you approve of or what you watch or what you pass on. There's been a, actually a lot of stuff that, you know, I've passed around with some of my friends and colleagues and whatever, and we see this thing and it says, boy, this really says it well. This is funny, and it pokes a legitimate fun at the people who do, who have a foolish idea. Or I guess I said pokes fun at the people. It's really po- poking fun at the idea that's foolish. Now, look, at if a person wants to cling to a foolish idea, guess what? Then they are foolish, too. That's just the way it works. But the goal isn't to be insensitive to people, although sometimes that's the complaint. Oh, that hurt my feelings. I'm offended. Well, come on, grow up. You know, maybe maybe you're just offended too easily. There's a difference in my mind between giving offense and taking offense. But generally, when people say this, I'm offended now, this is just to silence your contrary opinion. But I do think there are genuinely offensive ways to say things, even though they get to the point. And there was a borderline case. Actually, this I was riding in the car with a pastor, and we were talking about this. We were going to an event, and his 14-year-old daughter was in the back seat. And she said, and so this is just a bit coarse, but it's, it's not too bad. Uh, it's okay for radio. And she said, I just tell my friends, check your pants. Now, I wouldn't tell people, check your pants. She's a teenager, and she's telling her friends, so she could probably get away from with that. That is a little bit coarse. But isn't there a common sense um, rationale or notion built in there? It's just like, come on. You don't need to be a doctor to know this. Um, in fact, in the in the book uh, Street Smarts, I think I have a line in there where people talk about assigning gender at birth. Oh, yeah, this is the gender you were assigned at birth. And I said, look, at nobody assigns a penis or a vagina. It's either there or it isn't there. Now, to me, that was a very fair thing to say, and I didn't get it braided by my editor or Amy or anybody else who read the text. It may be a little bit jolting, but okay, this is reality. And so there's a certain sense that check your pants may be a little jolting, but it's an appeal to a common sense notion that people are just um, willfully ignorant of, ignoring. For some people, that might be over uh, over the line. Others, they like that one. I don't know. So you have to judge for yourself. Um, So I guess it just depends. That would be my take on it. All righty. So thank you, Julie, for that that question. I'm looking to see if my notes here, if I left anything out. Okay. There's a difference between between making a fun of an idea that's foolish, and obviously so, and making fun of an individual that we don't want to do. So when we are operating... As individuals, with individuals, we want to stay away from that stuff completely. When we are operating, you know, in the public arena, making the case for ideas, then there is an appropriate place for parody and sarcasm if it's done cleverly and carefully. Bill Maher does it. Babylon B does it. Actually, Bill Maher is a lot more aggressive than Babylon B. But they are both trying to show the foolishness of certain ideas that turn out to be destructive. Okay, so let's uh, 
Uh, here I've got a question from Merritt Vosberg, and um has to do with, um, you know, the Holy Spirit's role in apologetics. Hi, Greg. Hi, Stand to Reason staff. This is Merritt Vosberg. I live in San Angelo, Texas. Me and my two oldest kids actually just attended the reality conference in Dallas, and mm. it was incredible. We loved every second of it, and we're just so thankful mm. for everything that y'all do at Stand That's to Reason. Mm. Um, recently, I've been sharing some things that I've been learning um, and how to defend our faith, and I have found a common comment when I when I um, speak about these things to some of my friends who are also believers. Um, and the common comment I get is, well, you need to trust in the Holy Spirit. And there was recently a, um, a Disciple Now conference at a local church here in San Angelo. And I had some concerns about the speaker. I'd listened to several of his pod, um, sorry, Instagram little snippets that he has. And I listened to some of his sermons and, I had some concerns about what he was preaching. I felt like it was a very confusing message and it was full of a lot of um, self-centeredness, kind of self-worship for a lack of of better words. So, you know, I, I voiced my concerns about that. And the comment I get back is, well, we just need to trust the Holy Spirit we need to trust the Holy Spirit that we're going to send our kids to this Disciple Now conference. And, you know, God is going to, to um, the, the Holy Spirit's going to help them decide what truth is and what truth isn't. And I just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of just looking for a way to respond to that. I mean, my response is always, well, you know, we, we're not going to know truth unless we're reading Mm. truth and we understand mm. why we believe mm. this to be true um and and obviously i do trust the holy spirit um and i do believe that if my children are believers then they also have the holy spirit in them but i just feel like we need to be <laughs> careful so so my question is how can i respond to these parents who are saying to me you need to trust in the holy spirit mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. There's so much going on here and so much to respond to. Um, When I hear things like this, it just makes my heart fall on the one hand. It also makes me angry on the other. So uh, because this is bad advice, the way they're giving it. Of course, we're supposed to trust in the Holy Spirit. But what they seem to mean by the statement is that we don't we don't do apologetics, give evidence for that, because that's not trusting in the Spirit. And we don't even vet our own teachers properly. We let people teach whatever they want, and then we trust in the Holy Spirit to sort it all out. That was not Paul's advice. In fact, in, in Titus, uh, I think this is the right passage. I was just turning to it while, while you were talking there, Merritt. And uh, by the way, I like that name, Merritt. I don't think I've met anybody with that name. But I'm looking in Titus chapter 1. We have passages here. Uh, 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 this is a section in Titus 1 and also in First Peter, I think, that, or First Timothy, that talk about uh, the responsibilities or the obligations of uh, elders, okay? And 
Okay, here it is, verse 9, that the one requirement of an elder is that they hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced. Does that sound like Paul Paul is suggesting to Titus the recommendation that your friends have suggested to you? No, there's a lot of bad teachers, but you know what? We're just going to trust the Spirit to sort it all out. The Spirit doesn't sort things out like in a vacuum. We are given the Word of Truth, so we have a means by which the Spirit can help us sort truth from error. We assess based on reasons, based on revelation that's been given to us. Now, I, I just it, it, it pains me to hear someone say what you were told. Well, you know, he, here is this speaker that's marginal, and so we should just trust the Holy Spirit, as if we have no other alternative. Well, just let our kids go. Let our kids go to this teaching, and then God will sort it out. How does God sort it out? He sorts it out through other Christians who oppose the bad teaching in a way that's appropriate to the moment and to the circumstances and to the teaching. He doesn't—and this is why I read Titus. No, um, I mentioned Titus because this is a responsibility of an elder. The point I'm making, though, is that Paul's recommendation is to confront error and fix it, not to let it go and trust the Holy Spirit. Okay? And one person, one kind of person that has to be able to do that, have the skill and the temperament to stop them and say, no, is to be the ones who lead our church, who have oversight over our spiritual communities. Okay? So, I mean, I'm troubled that here's a person that's speaking, and you're sending kids to be discipled by him, and he's not offering a good example to them of a spiritually mature individual in terms of virtue. You mentioned that there seemed to be self-centered things that were coming across. Look at kids see that, and one of two things are going to happen. They're going to disrespect the speaker because they see that kind of thing in the speaker, and therefore they're going to disrespect the teaching. I'm not going to listen to that guy. He's a, he's, he's, he's a jerk. Or they're going to mimic the behavior because they see a spiritual leader doing it, and they think it's just fine. Neither is good. Now, you're going to have the speakers that have different characteristics, and, and, you know, nobody's perfect, and a lot of, you know, so that's not what I'm asking for. But what we don't do is we just treat that in a benign way, as if this is no big deal. All the Spirit will sort it out. Every speaker has his flaws, and, um, you know, and you're, you're not going to find the perfect person speaking unless you're the one speaking, <laughs> okay? Then you're going to agree with yourself, maybe. Um, but uh, nevertheless, if there are serious problems, the way a person comes across, the way he presents himself, that, that this, this is not a good thing. 
Um, secondly, is the concern about truth. Um, when somebody says we, we, that, that, that using apologetics is somehow a lack of trust in the Holy Spirit, this is where my first Columbo question comes in. What do you mean by that? But the way I'd put it is, really, how so? How is it that using apologetics to make my point <clears throat> somehow expresses lack of trust in God? I, I, I'm not sure. Well, you're trusting in men's arguments than in the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that look like then, the trust in the Holy Spirit? It's the, I mean, I'm really curious what they have to say. So we're not going to use men's arguments. I, I, have, I have something to say about that in a moment. But okay, so then their recommendation is to do what? I, I imagine their recommendation is just to not be fancy, just give the simple gospel. But, but guess what? Giving the simple gospel is not going to work either. Arguments don't work, and the gospel doesn't work. Why would I say that? It's the power of God to salvation to all who believe. Yes, to all who believe, not to all who hear. There's lots of people who hear the simple gospel, the powerful words of the simple gospel, and don't believe. Something else is necessary. What is that? The Holy Spirit. Now, if the Holy Spirit's present and in, in working in that particular person, then the simple gospel is powerful to bring them to faith. But it's not the only thing that's powerful to bring them to faith. Apologetics are also powerful to bring them to faith. People say nobody can be argued into the kingdom. Of course they can be argued into the kingdom. It happens all the time. Look at J. Warner Wallace, for example. Just one notable example who's close to me and us here at Stand a Reason. He was argued into the kingdom. Now, it wasn't argument by itself. None of us believes that. It was the Holy Spirit working on Jim through the arguments and through the proclamation of the Word. Jim went to a church service, and a pastor said, Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived. And he said, oh, really? Well, I... I'm going to check it out. And then he got a New Testament, and he read it, and uh, that was how his journey began. He was checking out to see if this pastor was right, that Jesus was smart. And then through a series of events, obviously, his assessment, his application of his detective skills to the eyewitness reports in the New Testament, he came to the conclusion that these reports were sound, reliable, and that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay. So um, people are become Christians, are saved through argument all the time, through evidence all the time. And it's not just nowadays. I, 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 I remember Jim and I doing a, an, an event in um, somewhere in, in Canada, Calgary, Alberta, or something like that. And there was a bunch of pastors that were there. It was a bre breakfast, maybe 15 or 20 pastors. And Jim and I were, both were given a chance to give a 15-minute, a, a um, you know, mini-message extemporaneously about uh, 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 that to encourage them in the importance of apologetics. Because Canadian pastors are really lackluster at that characteristically. They're just trying to keep their heads low. That hasn't worked, obviously. And so Jim gave his 15-minute presentation. Now, i got to follow Jim. I mean, if you know Jim, 
um, he's hard to follow because he's really good. But one of the things I said right out of the gate was, you want a good argument for apologetics? It's the guy who just spoke, because this guy was an atheist, hostile to Christianity. Yet when he saw the evidence, and he carefully filtered through the evidence, he became a believer. And that's the man that just stood before you making this case. That was my first, in a sense, evidence for the importance of apologetics. So um, there's another angle to this, too, though. It's not just that apologetics do um, change lives. They work. We've seen it. Dozens, I mean, multitudes. It was also the chief means of communicating the gospel effectively in the book of Acts. And even in the gospels, as Jesus spoke, you know, in John chapter, is it John 5, I think, is John chapter 5, Jesus says, maybe I'll turn there, just, this is really curious, so you can keep this in mind, Merit, when you talk to your friends. Just go to John chapter 5, and and, and here's what Jesus says, okay, I'm turning there right now. Jesus have a conflict with the with the um, with the uh, Pharisees who don't want to believe them. Believe him, okay. Um, am I in the right? No, I'm in John six. I can find it there. Okay. Um, Jesus says to them, "If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true." And he, what he means is it's not reliable. You have to have more than one witness according to the law for testimony to be reliable. Okay. But there's another who testifies of me. And then he says, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. So what Jesus said is, if you don't believe me, believe John. Okay? Then he says, later in verse 36, the very works that I do testify about me. Oh, you don't believe in me, or you don't believe in John? Believe in the miracles I work. He said, and the Father who sent me, he testifies about me, but you have neither heard his voice at any time, nor have you seen his form. The Father's testify. Oh, you search the Scriptures, but these testify about me, verse 39. Okay? And if that's not enough, read Moses. Moses wrote about me, verse 46. So here's John. Here's the Father. Here's the works. Here's the Scriptures. Here's Moses. Here are all the evidences that Jesus himself says. Okay, you don't believe in me? Believe. Here's the, here are the evidences. Jesus used apologetics. What was the most frequently raised issue um, in the New Testament that—or uh, I should say not issue, but what was the way in which people were— that the apostles and witnesses of the book of Acts say appealed to people to believe in Jesus? What was their appeal? They appealed to the resurrection. This Jesus whom you crucified. God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses to this. That's the first sermon of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. When Jesus, when Paul is talking at the Areopagus in Acts 17, he says, God has appointed a man to judge all nations, having provided proof by raising him from the dead. So, um, the question you might ask these who are dismissive of uh, apologetics and say, just trust the Spirit, you ask them this, do you think that Jesus and the Apostles used apologetics? Let's see what they say. Because if they did, do you think Jesus and the Apostles, like Paul, for example, were trusting in the Spirit? 
Yes. Okay, maybe that's the first question. Do you think Jesus and the apostles in their Jesus in his earthly life and the apostles following him when they're declaring the gospel, did they trust in the Holy Spirit? Oh, absolutely. Okay, good answer. Second, did they ever use apologetics? Now, of course they did. There's John 5 for Jesus, for example. There's Acts 17, and uh, 16, and 15. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus appeared to them with many convincing proofs. John says at the end of his gospel, I've written the, all these signs to you. These are evidence so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ and in, in, in believing have eternal life. The whole gospel of John is apologetics for the sake of having helping us to trust in Christ. All right, there it is. So if Jesus trusted in the Spirit, the apostles trusted the Spirit, and they all used apologetics, then using apologetics can't be contrary to trusting in the Spirit. QED. All right, Merritt, hope that helps. Thank you for your question. Thank you, friends, for being part of our show. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.